We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shootings, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. We have a Democratic Socialist running for president, and he's doing pretty well. And I've heard it said that in America, the moment people hear the word socialism, they stop thinking. They think communism. The images of a monster state destroying our freedoms. Of course, the truth is, other than that, that American socialists were at war with American communists. They hated each other. But that's reality, never mind image and narrative. I'm sure the Republicans, if Bernie Sanders gets the nomination, they'll probably call him a communist. Well, now we do have a surging Democratic candidate for president, independent Senator Bernie Sanders, who has always been what he calls a social Democrat or a Democratic Socialist. Those currently heading up the institutional big money Democratic National Committee are positively, I think the technical word is, freaking out, apoplectic, something like that. Now at a time when the Republican Party really resembles the old John Birch Society in the 1950s and 60s, they were considered extreme right wing Now it's where the Republican Party is. Some party insiders at the Democratic Party insist the Democratic Party should forcefully reject any leftward energy and that to win the White House and Congress in 2016, it must be seen as a so-called centrist party. Recently, Senator Claire McAskill of Missouri sought to dismiss the Senator Sanders juggernaut by saying on network TV, quote, It's not unusual for someone who has an extreme message to have a following. She, by the way, is a strong supporter of another Democratic candidate, the alleged frontrunner Hillary Clinton. But is Bernie Sanders' social democracy really something foreign to traditional American politics and government? The big money corporate narrative trying to drown everything else out says one thing— that, as our guest Professor Harvey J.K. writes, we all know that social democracy is not just unpopular in the United States, it is un-American. Well, reality is at odds with this narrative, quite strongly at odds. Our guest knows what he's talking about. Harvey K. is professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay and the author of the new book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great? And it's out by Simon & Schuster. Again, thanks for being with us, Professor Kay. The thing Franklin Roosevelt is most known for, of course, is his words, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. 
He knew the great political power of fear. To most Americans in the 21st century, we don't know what the term socialist means. So, since we don't know what it means, we fear that unknown. Fear is powerful, and it has been manipulated over and over and over again to some very bad effect. Bernie Sanders is positively on fire at this moment, and some, like Senator McCaskill, insist that his is an extreme message outside normal American politics, kind of un-American even. The institutional party represents the same big-money interests as the Republican Party, although they differ on some issues. McCaskill's attack on Bernie, did that come straight from her, do you think, Professor? Or do you think it is in sync with the Democratic establishment? One can't help but imagine a certain degree of anxiety is running through the Democratic, capital D, Democratic, capital E establishment. And she, in many ways, was articulating that anxiety, that fear, if you like. People can be roused and, and rallied for far more than fear and reassurance. They can be rallied because, in fact, they actually do believe in America's promise. And I think that's what yeah. Bernie Sanders is doing. Very good point. I think he's articulating what most of us already carry around within us and have been wondering where are the leaders who can tap into these reserves of ours, this belief in America as a grand democratic experiment, America as a place where we push and press for freedom, equality, and democracy. One doesn't even have to be a Bernie Sanders supporter to understand that we haven't seen democratic progressive leadership in decades at the national level, and that basically people have been yearning to hear these kinds of things. And look, look at the support that Elizabeth Warren garnered over these last couple of years as she took on the big banks. Look at now how Bernie Sanders is showing up in places like Iowa, is turning out folks all the way across the nation. And I'm telling you, whether he wins ultimately or not, the fact is that he has tapped into a the progressive spirit. It's a real spirit, and it's been with us for a very, very long time. There's something about the old spirit of 1776. The American War of Independence, it was about overthrowing the unelected royal masters and taking power for the common good. Isn't that really at our core? I mean, and here we are right now where there's some unelected royal masters, the 1%, really the 1/10th of 1%, who just see Congress as their subsidiary. Let's go back to 1776. Yes. Now, but let's not forget that even before there was any declaration of independence, there was already this kind of, call it small p, popular spirit for, for home rule, this popular spirit that extended all across New England, decidedly, and really did sort of shake up the, you know, the, the, the property and the, and the powerful and the, the, and the pious of their day. <laughs> and basically, when Thomas Paine writes Common Sense, the great pamphlet that right. calls for independence, and he publishes it in January 76, he didn't claim to be saying anything terribly original. All he said, basically, mm. believed was that he was putting into text, into words, what Americans were already engaged in. Most Americans saw themselves in rebellion. What Paine did is he says, we're gonna, we, we, it's time for us to separate. You know, we have it yes. in our power to make the world over again. And indeed, he actually proposed that we not only separate in favor of independence, 
that we separate in favor of creating a democratic republic. And, you know, in that spring of 76, more than 100,000 copies of Paine's Common Sense made their way around the colonies. And in essence, it was the popular spirit from what would become Maine, it was originally part of Massachusetts, all the way down deep into Virginia and the South, which led folks to realize that indeed it was time to separate and create a democratic republic. And for all of its faults and failings, that was a revolution. And in essence, those Paine's words and the actions of all those farmers and artisans and others who inscribed or endowed American history with a certain kind of promise. So that spirit of 76, I think we all carry it to some extent. Even conservatives carry it to some extent. For those who do, quite often it turns into fear. For others, it might well be harnessed as well. There was the Shays Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion, which was kind of a populist movement, and I believe that came before 1776 when it was about the debtors versus the creditors. Who had the real power? Who was going to shape this new government? It turned out... North to South, there was already in America, before 76, a great deal of what we would today call class tension between those who had and those who did not. Moreover, it was a, a tension that even in its day had quite often religious dimensions to it. So, for example, in New England, the Congregationalists were in... You know, they, they ran most of New England, uh, religiously speaking, outside of, of Rhode Island. And in the South, Anglicans dominated. So it wasn't surprising mm. that after Thomas Paine wrote Common Sense and said, based in Common Sense, he said, the only role for government in religion is to make sure everyone gets to practice it as they please. And all of a sudden, Baptists and Presbyterians and the growing number of Methodists they were ready now to, to fight for the revolution that otherwise they were a bit concerned about for yeah. fear that the Virginia gentry, who were overwhelmingly Anglican, might well you know, keep the, the nonconformists suppressed. Similar kinds of things happened in New England. I mean, it was an extraordinary moment. It was so powerful a moment. We often underestimate the degree to which the American Revolution was a revolution. Too often we're taught that, well, the French had a, had a really serious revolution because so many people got guillotined. <laughs> and and so on. But the fact is, ours was a world historic revolution because it created an independent democratic republic for all of its sins. I mean, and we know the the most tragic sin of all was slavery. But for all of those sins, those Americans then did things that continue to reverberate today. And even in the more conservative Constitution, as opposed to the Declaration, there is in that First Amendment, in that Bill of Rights, freedom of religion. You know, separation of church and state. That's a revolutionary idea in the modern world. We're talking to Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, Harvey Kay, on keeping democracy alive, Bert Cohen here. And it does, it indicates, you know, if you look at real history, never mind the, you know, official narrative, which is uh, corporate approved and is being taught now in the schools, unfortunately, this kind of class struggle, this this movement for self-government, and not to have control be in the hands of a few wealthy white men, has been with us from before we became America, and it's just part of who we are, despite... Just ask my students, when did the United States become a democracy, okay, yeah. as opposed to declare itself a, 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 an independent uh, republic? And when you look at American history... But for all the shame that may well be involved in too many of, of, of our lives and experiences in the past, the fact is that what really makes America great and exceptional, and I say that proudly, yes. is we have this ongoing set of struggles to realize 
the propositions declared in the Declaration, in the preamble to the Constitution, and in the Bill of Rights, and even to transform those to make them even more progressive. I think the Republicans these days, conservatives, they love to talk about American exceptionalism. Right, okay? for sure. But they yes. do so in a kind of vague, ahistorical way. Oh, Americans have values that nobody else has. And unfortunately, liberals and leftists, like my own colleagues, regularly disdain the very idea of American exceptionalism, which I do not, if we remember that for 200 and more years, what makes America exceptional is this kind of radical, democratic, progressive imperative that we're constantly trying for all, again, the tragedies and ironies of this country that we have never, well, in fact, the most peaceful period of American life may well be the past 30 years, and one has to wonder where, where is our radical spirit, and that's what Bernie Sanders has tapped into. We haven't achieved our potential yet, the idea of self-government. You know, people really take it to heart. This is not a foreign thing. This term social democracy is, is painted as something un-American somehow. This is essentially American. And as you said, you know, the struggle has been with us from the very start. And there were people who, you know, once the revolution got going, you know, some of the aristocrats said, oh, we'll go on this side because, you know, that's what we can uh, <laughs> make. Think about this, this question of social democracy. You're referring to this piece that I wrote for Moyers and Company, which yes. is up on their website if anybody's interested. Yes. I say social democracy is 100% American. Yes. And, and then what I do is I don't, you know, I don't just argue in terms of Americans' own values, as Republicans like to do. What I did is I, I argue historically. To go back to Thomas Paine, yes. the man who calls for independence and the creation of a democratic republic, and he went back to Europe and he witnessed the French Revolution. He witnessed mm. the poverty that prevailed in Britain. And he laid out a vision of social democracy. He pioneered the idea of social security. He said, if we can eliminate all these kings and aristocrats on the one hand, and if we realize the necessity of taxing the landed rich, who basically are holding the properties that God intended for all of us, then we can create, first of all, stakes, S-T-A-K-E-S, grants to young people, all young people at the age of maturity would get a sum of money that they could either you know, invest in land, get an education, set themselves up in business. But even more critically, he argued over and over again, it will provide a fund by which we could pay pensions to the elderly. In this fashion, for young and old, we'll prevent poverty from ever beginning. By the way, if you go to the Social Security website online, you will find Thomas Paine as the godfather of our Social Security system. Hmm. And that's right at the beginning, social democracy. Let's also not forget that even though we're very late to the idea of universal health care, we have yet to achieve it, it is the case that we were pioneering in universal public education, in public parks as opposed to private reserves for the rich. I mean, we have pioneered in many ways those kinds of things. All through the 19th century, wave upon wave of immigrants, Germans after 1848, Jews and Italians later in the century. These folks came to America, and they, they organized unions, they organized societies, and these were regularly social democratic, if not socialist, organizations, unions, and, and other kinds of groups. And then African Americans, as they came north in the great migration of the 20th century, their foremost leader, not Martin Luther King, but originally their foremost leader, A. Philip Randolph, yes. he was a, a, de- a declared capitalist socialist and a labor organizer, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, yes. and a civil rights activist. He's the man who first envisioned a march on Washington for the sake of integrating the economy, right. integrating the war industry. So there is this ongoing tradition. Then, 1930s, the New Deal. Oh, yeah. I mean, our 
great social democratic moment. And the generation that were in their late teens at that time who saw all of that and went off to fight in World War II, basically were fighting not just to defend the right. United States, but also for the opportunity of creating a more liberal and social democratic nation. Americans in 1943 and 44 wanted to create social democracy. They wanted guaranteed national health care. They wanted to afford even more in old age pensions. They wanted to provide scholarships and grants for young people to go to college. I mean, it's, it's all there. It's all history. There's no invention in my words, believe me. And then, of course, they fulfilled their expectations in some ways by, with the GI Bill. Yes. And in the 1960s, when I was a high school and then college student, we get not just the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, but fundamentally social democracy by way of Medicare and Medicaid, right. Occupational Safety and Health Administration, Environmental Protection Agency. You know, it's amazing to me. Republicans can disdain that all they want. But when I hear Democrats forgetting yeah. what the Democratic Party has been about, that's truly upsetting. Well, as you say, it's, it's not just forgetting, but it's actually suppressing. And I have found it very disturbing in recent years that there has been, it seems to me, a conscious intentional dumbing down of America through a lot of different ways of, you know, unfunding education, for example, and, and just replacing reality with the official narrative. And from what you're describing, it seems like, according to people like Claire McAskill and others who say democratic socialism or social democracy is un-American, then our history, America's proud history, <laughs> must be un-American. <laughs> right, absolutely. I'm probably of a similar age. During the age of protests over uh, the Vietnam War, at Nixon's urging, the mainstream media was frankly manipulated a little bit, I think, and they began focusing on what it called the heartland, America's conservative and very traditional Midwest, to try to tell a different narrative from all the protests that the media had been focusing on. Well, it's not very well known, but is it not true that the Midwest itself was for a long time quite the hotbed of social democratic activity? Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Absolutely. If you look closely at the populist movements, the People's Party of the late 19th century, what you find is a call on the part of farmers for government to come in and control or at least regulate railways and banks for a start. They wanted to create arrangements by which farmers could survive, and they pushed in the direction of social democracy. The agrarian socialists of the Midwest and the Southwest, they would have these, not just populists, but increasingly socialists, would have right. these huge encampments where people, you know, they would come in their wagons and, and basically do everything from having you know, fairs and festivals to hearing lectures by socialists themselves. So you get this kind of this grassroots socialism that extends pretty effectively Kansas down to Arkansas over to right through Texas and Oklahoma. And there was this very strong, very powerful kind of, of small-s socialist tradition that, that developed there in, in that region. And then, by the way, later in the 1920s and 30s, here in the upper Midwest, what you found is a similar kind of labor-farmer set of movements from Wisconsin out to North Dakota. So there is this heartland, smaller socialism, capital P, small p progressivism. There are still elements of that. I mean, you know, the funny thing was, uh, just as a sidebar, you remember when the Tea Party first launched in the spring of 2009? Yes. They were turning out at those town meetings on what came to be called Obamacare, but some of their signs said, don't touch my Medicare. Right. <laughs> Here's what disappointed me, that Obama didn't foresee any of this, maybe yeah. he didn't want to foresee it, 
but in fact, and maybe could have brought labor out, and in fact, maybe in the confrontation, everyone would have realized they're all on the same side. We're going to protect Medicare, maybe expand it to a Medicare for all. One of the sort of tragedies. The other thing, you mentioned Nixon, if you don't mind my talking history a bit. Oh, sure. We love it. Nixon. A lot of people don't realize that, in fact, Nixon spent more on the war on poverty than, than Johnson did. Huh. He also, by the way, Nixon, oh. maybe you don't remember, but he proposed a minimum family income. That's and he proposed right. national health care. Yes. This is what Nixon knew. Nixon's first interest was foreign policy. Yes. But he knew damn well that the generation that had come through the Depression and World War II, that they were a small-s, small-d, social-democratic generation. What really makes the, the greatest generation great is the fact of how progressive they were and all of the things that they afforded us that we've been sort of basically denigrating and allowing to be you know, besieged right. by Republicans and conservatives and, and the Democrats have failed to defend. Nixon knew that. He was part of that generation. He, had ser- he himself had served in the Navy in World War II. But he knew that he couldn't mess with the social democratic side of American life. Go back even further to the 1950s. Dwight Eisenhower ran, essentially with the backing of Republican conservatives, and he really, really angered them. Why? Because, as he said to mm-hmm. his press secretary, he said, any party that messes with labor's rights and social security subsidies to farmers will never be heard from again in this country. And what does he do? He actually expanded Social Security, and then he picks up the initiative that Roosevelt's administration had talked about, the interstate highway system. Think about it. You know, Republicans then, basically, whether they liked it or not, knew that that was a generation that would not put up with a tax on, they didn't call it social democracy, but on the, the achievements that they had secured in the 30s and the 40s. I just think it's so amusing when you hear people attacking Bernie Sanders for even talking about putting in a high tax rate on that percentage of one's income over and above a certain amount. Eisenhower did the same thing. He had a 92, I believe, percent uh, ta- yeah, tax rate. It was, yes, and keep in mind, we were at our economic healthiest Absolutely. in terms of growth. What better time? We had one of every three workers in labor unions and the highest tax rates we'd ever had. And that was our economically most viable and healthy period in American history, at least in the 20th century. You think about that, right? I mean, nobody wants to remember. In fact, it's funny, I think there was somebody played me a tape of somebody on Fox TV, an otherwise vile tape, sort of a rant by some right winger. And he said in this, you know, he said, Bernie Sanders wants to raise taxes to the highest they've been in the past 30 years. And he, and he chose the 30 years, right. of course, because he doesn't want to talk about how much higher they were before then and how much more successful we were economically. And the 50s and the Eisenhower period, what a great, as you said, fabulous. There was a strong middle class. I mean, a huge middle class. Now the middle class has been decimated. But we're talking reality here. This is not official narrative, so what does it matter, I suppose? If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is uh, Harvey J. K., Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin. We're talking about real American history and how you get people to know this history, I don't know, is beyond me when you know people like Claire McAskill and other uh, shills for the uh, official narrative of the so-called Democratic... It, it is difficult. I mean, we depend on small community radio stations. These are the places where at least an alternative understanding and a more critical and realistic understanding of the state of affairs can be had. Beyond that, well, beyond that, we have to push. 
So nowadays we've seen the development of something called Huffington Post Live. They're open to progressive voices, obviously. And, you know, I think new technologies afford yeah. new opportunities. Yes. And, and the, the... In fact, think about it this way. I mean, I, I'm on Twitter a lot, and basically, you know, I told everyone I was going to be on your show today. Now, community radio in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, you have a listen live that can go, net, you know, can go global if, if oh, yeah. you tune in, right? And it's so podcast. I'm hoping that people all around the country, maybe overseas, are listening to this too. So that's how we educate. And the miracle to me of podcast, this is, it's broadcast in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Concord, New Hampshire, and Walpole, New Hampshire, but it's also worldwide on podcast. And that, you know, is a very, very democratic with a small d, you know, new way of communicating, real mm -hmm. democracy. And it's starting to catch on. I think that's part of Bernie's appeal is that, you know, he's burning up Facebook and all this uh, new democratic technology. Getting back a little bit to the Midwest, there was something called the DFL, the Democrat Farm Labor Party. Yes, in Minnesota. Yes. There originally was a Farm Labor Party. That was a really progressive party in Minnesota. It essentially remerged with the Democrats and became the DFL. And probably the best-known figure of the DFL right. in the late 20th century is Hubert Humphrey. Humphrey. Right. And it was a strong tradition when I went out there in, in Iowa back in uh, the 1984 campaign. And it's, it's a big part of the Midwestern tradition, the old heartland, the allegedly conservative heartland. It's a strong tradition. It's another bit of history from the 1930s. In the 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt gave more backing to the LaFollette brothers. They were the sons right. of, uh, of the original LaFollette, Robert LaFollette. Robert, yeah. Franklin Roosevelt gave his backing and endorsement to their capital P progressive party here in Wisconsin over that of the Democratic Party. Wow. Interesting. The capital P progressives were the ones who were most avidly backing the New Deal. And here in Wisconsin, sure. the name LaFollette carried so much oh, progressive yeah. weight. I mean, oh, it yeah. really was a a popular name. It, and the LaFollette name still carries a lot of weight, I understand, out there. And back in the 30s, and, you know, for the last hundred years or so, school children all across America have read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. He, Upton Sinclair, was a socialist and very nearly became governor of California in the 1930s. Yeah, that was one of Roosevelt's mistakes, in fact. Oh? Because he did not give his backing to the Upton Sinclair capital E-P-I-C, Epic Movement, right. which was a decidedly social democratic, democratic socialist campaign for, for governorship in California, which had huge ba popular backing, but it faced the opposition of the Hollywood film moguls yep. and all of their media power. And it was fascinating that what they learned, the, the big corporate uh, moneyed interest, they, they developed alleged newsreels that were shown in the theaters. They didn't have TV, obviously, at the time, to scare people. Because otherwise, if not for that, he would have been governor, and he was certainly a uh, social democrat. And you know, that's well. I had a note from my cousin last night, uh, from, who, who's in New Jersey, and in this note, he, he he reminded me that the Hollywood moguls opposed Upton Sinclair's epic campaign because Sinclair talked about taking unused factories. Okay, because of the, the depression, there was lots of uh, oh, yeah. enterprises that sure. were standing uh, idle, yeah. and including probably uh, Hollywood studios, and, and basically uh -huh. saying we're going to take these over and set up uh, economic cooperatives. And uh, maybe the Hollywood moguls were afraid that some of the best talent were going to all of a sudden be given us public support to go out and make movies. Yeah, and Epic, of course, stood for End Poverty in California. Right. I'm glad you reminded me. Yeah, sure. Franklin Roosevelt. 
obviously, it seems to me anyway, he was he was pushed. And one thing he told, as you mentioned before, a Philip Randolph, who greatly influenced Roosevelt, who wanted uh, you know to end segregation and have some equality. What he told Roosevelt told him. Roosevelt told him, "I support you. I'm with you. Now go out there and make me do it." Right. You know, that's, that's a, that was a, one of these great moments. Probably Wonderful. Great stories of American public political life. On January 6, 1941, Roosevelt gave his Four Freedom speech. Yes. Uh, his saying that we're not in the war, we hope not to be in the war, but we need to make sure that we turn the United States into the arsenal of democracy. And he said, and we look forward to a world that will be characterized by four fundamental freedoms. Freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And Randolph, who was already friends with Eleanor Roosevelt, heard that mm. speech and decided now is the time to act. And he begins to organize, by way of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and black churches around the country, the March on Washington movement. And this movement was intended to bring at least 10,000 African Americans to march in Washington to demand an end to segregation in the defense industry. Yeah. So when you know, word spread quickly, large protests were held in, in America's major cities. And Roosevelt got worried. He wasn't worried so much about African Americans marching. He was worried about the violence that might uh, uh, that might uh, ensue from from Southern whites. Yeah. Don't forget, Washington's a Southern city, mm. and don't forget as well that in 1941, Washington D.C. was still a segregated city. So he asked Eleanor to talk to A. Philip Randolph and try to talk him out of marching, and she couldn't do it. And <laughs> Roosevelt himself figured he better have a, a one-to-one conversation with Randolph. So he invites him to the White House. And Roosevelt is schmoozing them, and then, you know, it turns to the question of the march, and he says to Randolph, so how many people are you planning to bring to Washington? And Randolph, picking up on the, on the anxiety, mm-hmm. all of a sudden shifts the number from 10,000, and he says, we can bring 100,000, and we will. Which basically Roosevelt sits back in his chair, either by shock or by, by amazement, mm-hmm. and he says, well, I guess we better do something then. And that's when he signs executive orders commanding that defense industries will be subject to uh, federal guarantees of uh, hiring of blacks. Now, what's interesting, and very few people uh, know this, is that Randolph wrote a letter or, or, or communicated in some fashion to a relative. He said he knew when he went into the White House, uh-huh. he knew that Roosevelt was ready to act. Roosevelt would never have had him to the White House right. if he wasn't going to do something. And that's where the story comes from. When Roosevelt said, now make me do it, what he meant was basically thank you, and then he announces, these, these changes, uh-huh. because that's the push. Yes, Roosevelt believed in, in many of these things, but he knew that if he's going to basically survive a conservative Congress, right. he's going to make sure public opinion goes with him, he needs to have public support and backing. It's that's been one of my disappointments with the Obama administration. Yeah, that in the beginning, they spent little time cultivating popular support for their initiatives, and they did nothing to mobilize all of the energies that they had inspired mm. in 2008 in young people. Yeah, it seemed like uh, they kind of used hope as a marketing ploy, which is, of course, very frustrating. But people, you know, that's one thing that people these days, they've come to accept a sense of powerlessness. And the examples that you give, we are anything but powerless. We have power. We, and when you make the politicians realize that, hey, there is the, 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 the people are there with me, I can move forward. But if they don't see the people there, they're not going to move forward. It can yeah, happen. I think one of the really distinguishing things of the Sanders campaign yeah. is that he is determined not to make this a campaign simply for his own election. Absolutely. Okay. And Roosevelt himself, back in 1935, 
He said, look, new laws do not bring the millennium, which is to say, even when we enact the laws, the fight is not over. It begins now. Now is the time when you have to make sure that those laws are honored, that those laws really do make a difference in people's lives. I mean, when they passed the National Labor Relations Act in 1935, the thing that they had to do was to make sure that the federal government backed up labor union organizing for the rest of the decade, and as a consequence, millions became organized. Well, similarly, I think Bernie understands that. He doesn't, he doesn't say, elect me, make me your champion, right. be the champion for, for you, which, by the way, if you listen closely to Hillary, she quite hasn't, she hasn't quite grasped the significance of that yet. No. What Bernie says, basically, <laughs> is, you know, we're in this together, and we're gonna, yes. we need to create a political revolution. And Bernie is saying very clearly, this is not about me. And I think there's, there's a wariness of a cult of personality that's starting to happen a little bit, but that's not what his campaign is about. He knows it's we. It's about we. It's about us. It's about us taking power and getting back on the traditional American track, which we have gotten off of. You know, what's, what's really new and different is this rightward shift. I mean, this is really bizarre. I mean, you talked about Nixon, Eisenhower. These guys would be considered, you know, socialists. They would. That's why the Republicans never, ever, have you ever heard any Republican <laughs> speak favorably of Eisenhower these days? Not at all. No, in fact, you know, the funniest, the funniest thing is, is that the, a, a, a friend, a dear friend of mine, not, I hate to name drop like this, but Norman Lear, the great TV producer. Oh, wonderful guy, yeah. He, he has this great affection for Eisenhower, which always surprises me, given Norman's liberal instincts. But he worships Eisenhower for one particular line in his farewell remarks on leaving the presidency, when he warned Americans, right. you know, to be aware of and to be wary of the military-industrial complex. Now, would you hear anybody talk like that today? No, of course not. And I have to tell you, people, I have somewhat of a reputation for being on the left. Big shock. But one of my favorites <laughs> is Eisenhower. You know, it was, I mean, there was a huge middle class. And it, it, he did a really good job. And you're right, you never hear any Republican. Well, don't forget, the making of the middle class is basically, it happens in the New Deal, World War II, and the G.I. Bill. The 16 million Americans served in uniform in World War II. 400,000 did not get to come home. Of the 15.5 million that came home, 12 million took advantage, rightly so, of the G.I. Bill, which is probably sure. one of the greatest social democratic programs in American history. Absolutely. Nobody remembers how much social democracy built the middle class. Yes, and, and the GI Bill uh, just uh, refreshed uh, some memories as to what that was about, what it did. The bill, which was early in the war, Roosevelt uh, spoke to his, you know, his cabinet and advisors, and he said, we need to prepare now for the end of the war. We can't have right. all of these millions of young men and women coming out of uniform unprepared, unprepared for the post-war challenges. So they began to plan for a GI Bill. Now, it's interesting. The GI Bill was to provide transitional dollars, uh, health care dollars, um, possibilities for uh, you know, subsidized mortgages, and most especially, yes. educational opportunities. Yes. Now, this is, this is the interesting thing. Roosevelt was really worried that the, that the Congress, which by that time was dominated by a, a coalition of Southern yeah. white supremacist Democrats mm -hmm. and Northern pro-business Republicans, that they would not approve a GI Bill. 
uh, in part because the Northern Republicans were opposed to any kind of social democratic planning, and the Southerners because they didn't want to give. They were willing to screw. Excuse my language. They're willing to <laughs> screw okay. the uh, the white guys because they didn't want black men and women to have access to public funds. So what they did. So what Roosevelt did is he, you know, he proposes this, and fortunately, and one of the one of these great moments of we'll have to call ironic, the American Legion. Which was one of, it has always been a very conservative organization. Yeah. They decided to take on the cause of the GI Bill, and they had all of their posts across the country lobby. And as a consequence, the GI Bill that was enacted in Congress turned out to be even larger than the one Roosevelt had envisioned. Wow. Amazing, really. And, and the GI Bill clearly was social democrats socialists no question about it and it built up a huge middle class it just yeah and and let's not forget that that again that generation so imagine they came home at the end of the war maybe they were 25 in 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 the right. majority right they had seen the progress accomplished by the new deal they had seen what a democratically mobilized people could accomplish in world war ii yes and here they were endowed with the gi bill and the opportunities it afforded and for all of their faults and failings, you know, the persistence of McCarthyism in the, from the late 40s into the 50s, for all of that, the persistence of Jim Crow laws in the oh, South, yes, the, yes. the nightmare of Jim Crow, when the 60s come around and they reach their maturity, they're now entering into their 40s, what do they do? They elect Democrats, they elect an, uh, they elect an administration and a Congress, as I said before, that enacts Medicare, Medicaid, the EPA, OSHA, the Consumer Product Safety Commission reforms the immigration laws in this country, sets up the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities. I mean, I could go on and on. It's, it's a, from, the, from 1935 to, to the late 1960s, there's this great, wonderful social democratic arc in America, mm. and we still are nourished by it. Absolutely. So unfortunately, we fail to defend it as we should. It's true, and certainly that period was one time of great patriotism because people who had a sense that, wow, I have a stake in this. This really means something to me. I am very proud of my country, and I am really committed to my country. And now people are largely left out. We have a government that's just a you know, wholly owned subsidiary of, of a few uh, corporate interests. And it's starting, I think that that sense, that's what, what Bernie uh, Sanders is yes, tapping you know, into. Bernie Sanders has called for, for uh, creating a program that will turn public higher education in basically so that it would be tuition-free. So Absolutely. So and it's not hard to do. You can tax it by a, a quarter of 1% uh, financial transactions tax, which would, on a $10,000 transaction, that'd be 25 bucks. Yeah, so think, so think, Nothing. think, think back historically. Yeah. So, what did Roosevelt do? In the 1930s, he created the National Youth Administration, which afforded work-study programs and other kinds of opportunities so that young people in high school and college could finish their education. Then, during World War II, he envisioned the GI Bill to provide educational opportunities, and so many millions of young Americans took advantage of it. Bernie is really, in many ways, redeeming that New Deal greatest generation Absolutely. Theory. Absolutely. Nothing extreme about that. Nothing extreme about it at all. In fact, I find it somewhat ironic and, and interesting talk about the spirit of, of socialism, really, the, the grand American spirit. I was in the New Hampshire State Senate from 1990 to 2004, and I found it very interesting. I just sat back and watched. Here I was in the New Hampshire Senate. There was a piece of legislation to essentially 
take the privately owned water company serving the large city of Nashua, New Hampshire, and convert it to municipal ownership and control, to municipalize this public utility. Its biggest supporters were Republicans. I, 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 the, I'm sure the sponsors of the bill and the supporters weren't aware of it, but isn't that classic social democracy at work? They loved it. These Republicans loved it. It passed. It became law. And it's been serving the people of that large city. Well, the thing to never forget is that capital P progressivism, 100 years ago, comes out of the Republican Party. Oh, interesting. That, Do tell. That's for a, <laughs> one of the ironies, right? Yeah. Well, that that's uh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that, and you know, certainly Martin Luther King now is is a mythic figure. I was down in Washington recently and saw the statue. I don't think he would approve of it. He has become a myth, far different from who he actually was. Despite the narrative today that he was only about equal rights oh, for African Americans, wasn't he too a democratic socialist? He was a democratic socialist, absolutely. His his. His family was a, was a New Deal Democratic family, black family, and obviously in Atlanta, Georgia. And he grew up in that milieu. He heard A. Philip Randolph speak yes. when he was a college student and was excited by Randolph's ideas. And indeed, he was a Democratic Socialist. Don't forget, Republicans in that time, conservatives tried to portray him as a communist. He yeah. was a small-D, small-S Democratic Socialist. And let us not forget that he was assassinated while campaigning yes. in Memphis in, on, in support of striking black sanitation workers. That's true. And he, he certainly challenged the uh, status quo, but he was very, I mean, he's a hero. Now. There's nobody in America, probably in the world, who doesn't know the name Martin Luther King Martin Jr. King, right. I mean, but think about American history. From Thomas Paine to Martin Luther King, we have this great tradition of American radicalism, progressivism, and social democratic vision. That's true. And I, I found it interesting. When I was in college, I, I read a book uh, by James Schlesinger called The Vital Center. It's, it, it seems what passes for the center today is far to the right of what he recognized. <laughs> Arthur Schlesinger, you mean Arthur Schlesinger, James Schlesinger. That's what I meant, Arthur Schlesinger. Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s Vital Center, for all of you know, my criticisms of it, yeah. had, a, had a social democratic sensibility. Absolutely. Because that was what most He knew. He knew very well that most Americans... Even if they didn't use the term, it was called liberalism at the time, right. had basically become small s, small d, social democrats. It's true. Now, in terms of the identity of the Democratic Party, which I did want to parenthetically, back in 1948, uh, there was a lot of support. My understanding was there was a poll that showed 75% thereabouts of Americans supported national health care. But the Southern Democrats, the white supremacist, incredibly racist Southern Democrats thought, well, if we have uh, uh, national health care, that means blacks will be in the same hospitals as white people. Right. You bet. I mean, (laughs) they were willing, as I was saying a number of times, the Southern white supremacists who ran the Democratic Party in yes, the South and they did. their own property. Basically, as they saw it, if you allow national health care, that means we're going to have to integrate <laughs> the hospital. Shocking. And don't forget, during World War II, they segregated blood in the military in this country. Oh, God. I mean, it took a, it, the fight for civil rights is this long and heroic struggle. And sometimes at the most and what we would, I mean, we have to, we laugh at the prospect of segregating blood. There was a great episode of MASH. Did you ever watch MASH? Oh, of course. There was a great episode. Do you remember the episode where they, they were, they, this racist, they decided, you know, they were going to, you know, they were going to basically lead him to believe that he had been 
um, infused with, with African-American blood, and thus his skin color was changing. It was an absolutely fascinating episode. <laughs> well, that's a reflection of what was going on in the 40s, on, on, you know, on the, basically at the heart of and at the, at the margins of this, questions of, of this question of race. In terms of the Democratic Party, how significant was Bill Clinton's Democratic Leadership Council in pulling it to the right and to, and to change the identity of the Democratic Party? Could you repeat that? I, I, I didn't quite hear that. In terms of the identity of the Democratic Party, how significant was Bill Clinton's Democratic Leadership Council oh, in pulling Dem- it to the, the right? DLC. Yeah. Yeah, you know... If we put, let's, let's step back before Clinton into the 1970s when he was this young politician. It's interesting that uh, public opinion surveys and polls right through the 70s and 80s, in spite of the success of, of conservatives by the end of the 70s, public opinion polls showed that the, the great majority of Americans, and I mean great majority, I don't have the figures right in my head mm-hmm. right now, had no intention of turning back any of the reforms that had been achieved in the New Deal or the Great Society. In fact, I, as I remember from, from my studies on this, that basically, even then, national health care was... Look, even in the 1950s, 50% of Americans believed in national health care. And in the 1970s into the 80s, national health care was still, in most Americans' minds, something to strive for. So there was definitely this continuing liberalism in those years. But, but the divisions on the Democratic left were significant. And the, mm. a younger generation of folk, you know, led by the likes of Gary Hart, basically wanted to write off the New Deal. They wanted to mm. write off the labor movement. And we made the mistake, to, and a lot of people are going to get very upset when I say this, we made the mistake, at, and I was a very, very young voter at that time, we made the mistake of choosing Jimmy Carter as president. And Jimmy Carter was, an, was anti-FDR, and when push came to shove in 1978, right. he turned his back on consumer protection, he turned his back on the labor movement, and basically he began the deregulation of big business. Every single thing that mm. we hold Reagan accountable for as, as you know, liberals and progressives, Carter was already doing that in the late 70s. So basically, the Democratic Party become, starts moving to the right even though most Democrats are not moving to the right. And even when, when, when Reagan won in 1980 at the presidential elections, basically Carter lost because Democrats were so turned off by him. Most right. A good million stayed home. Right. So, okay, so we enter into the 1980s, the Democratic Leadership Council emerges, and they basically, with all of the monies that they have, they are determined to move the Democratic Party officially to the center. And their young champion is Bill Clinton. And Clinton himself, who ran, I think the language was hope and change, I think he used the uh. language himself, <laughs> right? And, and uh, you know, everyone was, was, I know I was, was shocked yeah. when first, you know, he expends most of his political capital fighting for NAFTA, the North yes. American Free Trade Agreement, which was a Republican Terrible. idea. Yeah. And, he, and when I say fighting for it, he had to fight both in the environmental movement and the labor movement, both of both groups opposed NAFTA. And then he appointed Hillary Clinton to head up the National Health Care Commission, or whatever they called it at the time. And for one year, they ran that health care commission as a, as a secret commission. No, not open to the public, not, not in any way a sort of, you know, let's talk about it in a public conversation. And in the course of that year, 
the Republicans and the insurance, what do they call them, the big pharma yeah. and health insurance folks, they mobilized and, of course, they killed yeah. the initiative. So, you know, the DLC, that they had their, they had their champion. You know, people think that I, people think I'm talking conspiracy here. DLC is Clinton. Go back to 76, the, the, the big mobilization for Carter, the monies that he secured, that was all done by way of the Trilateral Commission, which David Rockefeller led. And, by the way, there's nothing conspiratorial about that. It's all... That's all open. They published their own report. Sure, sure. It's, all, it's all in a book published by NYU Press. It's, there's nothing conspiratorial. That was the plan. That was the ambition, to move the Democratic Party away from labor and minorities. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here, our guest today, is Professor uh, Harvey Kay, uh, Professor of Demo- Democracy and Justice. We're talking about an article he wrote recently and had on uh, on Moyers and Company called, uh, what is it called again? 100%? Social democracy is 100% American. And uh, it we, is. I wrote, I, I'll just mention, I wrote, uh, Moy- Bill Moyers himself, Suggested the idea, right. and when I and, and when I did it, they posted it at Moyers and Company, and it's still very much alive. If anyone is interested, they go to the Moyers and Company website. It's there. Please have a read of it. If you like it, you know, make make clear you do, and if you don't like it, make clear you don't. Well, we're talking about that. We're kind of delving into it. And a friend uh, recently wrote that Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton are two sides of the two sides of the same coin. The DLC third wave corporatist coin representing almost entirely identical positions about how to best preserve the status quo. You know, it seems to me, uh, Harvey, that uh, in well, F- just in, to be in fairness, yeah. let me say that I actually believe that Hillary Clinton has liberal instincts and really does want to pursue a, a, a whole panoply of liberal initiatives. I, I, I believe that. Okay. okay. But if you, but my biggest concern about Hillary is the degree of to which, of course, she is beholden to very large, as you said, corporate interests and financial interests, and the degree right. to which they would constrain whatever instincts she has. And I think, I think one, you know, I listen closely to speeches because I think they're very revealing. She launched her campaign on. Uh, for, on the, at the Four Freedoms Park in New right. York City, a park that opened a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And I'll just mention I was an historical advisor to that. And she launched, uh, not to her campaign, I mean to right. the park. Right, right, right. She, she yeah. launched the, the, her campaign at the park because in many ways she wanted to, you know, wrap herself in the memory of Roosevelt. But when she did that, there are things that, that I heard and I saw that really were unsettling. First of all, she referred to the four freedoms, but she never named what the four freedoms were uh, in her uh-huh. remarks. Second of all, she continued to speak of, I want to be your champion. As I said before, she didn't speak as Roosevelt might well have, that, you know, new laws don't bring the millennium, you're going to still have to fight, in a way that Bernie, I think, fully comprehends. Yes. And it's one of the reasons that I'm drawn to his campaign. And and I, and I think that these are worrisome kinds of things about Hillary, and I also think she's come late some very significant progressive questions, because she knows that after the Warren, Warren is pushing her from the left, I think. I mean, she knows that the Democratic base, she's going to have to, she's going to have to move towards it, at least now for the primary campaign. Sorry, so you go right ahead. Well, I, I, I do think, and, and you're, you're talking right on to it, that, uh, you know, it, it seems to me that every election, people either want more of the same or change, one or the other. 
And this is really the question, the identity of the Democratic Party, how we can best win, not what's, you know, pure and, and exactly right, but really winning here and, and gathering, you know, the, the public uh, in energy, the identity of the Democratic Party. Do you think 2016 is a year for preserving the status quo, you know, the, the corporate uh, control, or is there a lot of energy, you think, for getting back to the you know, traditional American position of social democracy? Is the, is the energy there for that, do you think? Could this be not only the right thing to do, but a winning thing to do? Well, okay. I, yes, I do. I think it's the winning thing to do. But let, let, me, let me speak again historically, and I'll go back yeah, to sure. Roosevelt and others. And I think what we need to appreciate, we, we've all become so wrapped up in, in, with good reason, but I think we take it too far, with what happens in November every four years around the presidential question. And I can tell you that these, the Republican conservatives are deeply embedded in states across the country. Yes. And they have, they have effectively organized. I mean, I, I'm in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and we have our legislature is controlled by conservative Republicans with, who are Tea Party types. Our governor, Scott Walker, who is a, you know, one of the leading candidates mm-hmm. for the Republican nomination for president, these folks have besieged what, what was the Wisconsin progressive tradition. They came, Wisconsin was the first state in the nation to enact the collective bargaining rights for public employees. And, we were, and in 2010, when he won election, what he did within weeks of taking office in 2011 is he and the Republicans, they ended the collective bargaining rights of public employees. So all yes. these years of unionism were, in overnight, were, were, were brought to an end. Yeah. Okay? They smashed, this year, right to work for private sector. They basically enacted pri- right to work for private sector. Mm-hmm. Unionism mm-hmm. is up against the wall here in Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. This year they've, they've enacted a budget which removes $250 million from the public universities. And they tried to remove from the charter of the university the commitment to the search for truth and, and, the, and the pursuit of public service. Can you imagine what we're up against? Now, this has been happening in states around the country. We happen to be, you know, the Koch brothers, uh, right. big experiment. And seriously speaking, so even if we win the presidency, you know, whether it's, you know, Hillary Clinton or, or even better, Bernie Sanders, the battles are not over. I mean, the battle just begins, because believe me, I don't expect the Democrats to take the House this time around, no matter how good things get. Right. And uh, so the, the battle, we have to see, see things not in terms of this next year and a half of campaigning. We need to see things in terms of the next 20 years of American public life. Boy, that's true. Taking it back, you know. I, you know, it, in 1930, it was very interesting, in the sure, midst sure. of the Great Depression, when Roosevelt was the governor of New York, and had yet to announce his candidacy for president, he said to a friend, you know, looking around us, I'm convinced that we need to make America fairly radical for a generation. And I think we need to start thinking in terms of a a generation's worth of political labor, not a campaign's worth. Right. Yeah, it's about... uh fighting the fight this year as well as uh, for the long time to come. And I do think that uh, it'll be interesting if Scott Walker is the nominee because, I mean, he could be because, after all, the others, other 20 or 50 or so running, talk, you know, pledge fealty to people like the Koch brothers. But your governor, uh, uh, Scott Walker, has actually delivered. 
for the Coke actually breast. delivered. <laughs> actually, so, well, this has been very, very interesting. Love talking about history and the possibilities. I think the possibilities are there that we could tap into the old, I mean, even Lincoln said, you know, he dedicated himself to a government of, by, and for the people. I think that energy is there. You know, Hillary's between a rock and a hard place. She's got to please her moneyed interests on Wall Street and somehow try to tap into the energy that is the Democratic Party. I'm not sure she can do it, but uh, it's up to us to really do it. If people are interested in following uh, your stuff, as you say, the uh, this particular essay was on Moyers and Company. What else? Any other websites to which you can point them? What I would... People like the kinds of things we're talking about. If you don't mind my saying it, please. Um, this is the 10th anniversary of, of a book that got a lot of attention for me. It, it was the book that I wrote about my childhood hero, Thomas Paine, titled "Thomas Paine and the Promise of America." Yes. And I retell the story of America basically by way of Paine's labors and Paine's legacy. And it's in paperback. You can just go to Amazon or your favorite bookstore, even better, yes. and pick it up. And then my book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, which is subtitled What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. And I have to tell you that when I write history, I write them as historical and political arguments. So they will see Uh the degree to which I make those stories directly relevant to the politics of the day. I don't actually have a a website. Um, One thing you could do is I've got a lot of pieces at the Campaign for America's Future. Uh I have uh, a lot of stuff at Moyers. and, you know, if anybody's interested, I'm at, at Harvey J.K. on Twitter. Uh-huh. H-A-R-V-E-Y, initial J-K-A-Y-E. And I, 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 I'm on it a lot, and I express myself as often as I can. Sounds terrific. Well, very interesting, and uh, maybe, uh, maybe we'll have democracy coming back to the United States of America. Thanks so much for being with us, Harvey thank K. Anytime you want to talk, just let me know. All right, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Chevrolet, the mock seals come.